Well, we are back in our study of chapter 26 of the Confession of Faith on the Church. We saw last week with paragraphs 14 and 15 that a new subtopic is introduced into chapter 26, namely interchurch communion or the communion that churches have with one another. If you remember, I said that up to this point in this chapter, uh, the focus has been either broadly on the universal church of Christ, narrowly uh, on the local church of Christ, um, uh, but yet here in paragraphs 14 and 15, we kind of see both come together, the universal and the local, and we see that there are obligations and duties that each local church has towards all other true churches because while they are distinct congregations, they're also members of the universal body of Christ. We looked at the first half of paragraph 14 last week. We considered the, ra- the rationale or the foundation, if you will, that the confession gives for our holding communion with other churches, as well as the goodness and benefit that comes from doing so. For example, we saw that the rationale, the foundation for our communion with other churches is simply, as was just said, because we are all churches of Christ. And in this regard, we compose one body. If asked then, why ought we to have fellowship with other churches? The answer is simply because we need one another. Just as all of us are not a mere collection of independent body parts, but together compose one whole body, so also the churches of Christ, though distinct congregations, do make up one Catholic universal body of Christ, and therefore they ought to hold communion with one another. We read uh, from the minutes of the Abington Association, an early association of particular Baptists, who when they formed their association, gave as their first reason for doing so this reason. They said, Because there is the same relation betwixt the particular churches each towards the other as there is betwixt particular members of one church. For the churches of Christ do all make up one body or church in general under Christ their head. Therefore, we conclude, just so you know, I'm not reading from that right now. Not the Abington Association. I know I'm quoting that. I see a lot of people looking down. That's not what I'm reading from. That's a different passage. It says, Wherefore, we conclude that every church ought to manifest its care over other churches as fellow members of the same body in Christ in general do rejoice and mourn with them according to the law of their near relation in Christ. So, why do we hold communion together? Because we are all one body in Christ and we need each other. Furthermore, we saw that the main benefit or goodness that comes from holding communion with other churches is, as the confession says, the good and prosperity of the churches of Christ. The good and prosperity of the churches of Christ, or as it explains at the end of paragraph 14, their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. We noted then that the benefit of holding communion, which the confession gives, is in many ways quite different from how Baptists often speak today of the purpose and benefits of associating with other churches. For example, we picked on the Southern Baptists a little bit last week. We always pick on them occasionally. Um, We saw how the Baptist 
faith and message, their doctrinal statement, it really sees associations as existing for the purpose of cooperation, and it's especially an outward-looking cooperation, either doing missions or church planting. According to the Baptist faith and message, that is really why associations exist, and they even describe Christian unity itself as, as kind of a unity in cooperation, and we have shared goals. You may be aware of some of the stuff going on right now in the SBC uh, with Rick Warren and all the hubbub, uh, but somebody texted me something that Warren tweeted this week, and it just goes to show kind of how prevalent this kind of thinking is ingrained uh, in, in the SBC, in conservatives and others, uh, others alike. Warren said this, why can't we return to the original Baptist vision of unity through a mission, not a confession? Why can't we return to the original Baptist vision of unity through a mission, not a confession? There's a lot of things we could say about that. Uh, First of all, that is not the original Baptist vision for unity. That's more of a 20th century innovation. Uh, and secondly, those are always the famous words of heterodox people, right? Um, like, show me one heterodox person in history who's not said that. Uh, it's just, oh, you want to start ordaining women. And all of a sudden, we want to work through cooperation, right? Um, but in some ways, he's speaking as a fellow Baptist to his fellow Southern Baptists. Uh, and that's kind of how they think. It's, it's unity often in, in a mission, uh, even by their own statements. In contrast to that, while we are all for cooperating in our associations and furthering the kingdom through missions and church planting, our own Texas Association is involved in two church plants in Texas as we speak, yet it is interesting to note that it is a glaring omission of our confession of faith that missions and church planting and evangelism are not mentioned as one of the benefits of interchurch communion. It doesn't exclude them. It's not anti those things, but that's not the emphasis. Rather, again, it is much more focused on the body of Christ and the household of faith, which is, again, because the foundation of our communion is much deeper than common goals, uh, common, common visions of, of goals and purposes, but more fundamentally than that we are one body in Christ. Okay? Any questions on that? All right. Well, today we're going to move on to the second half of paragraph 14. And even there, we're really just going to focus on two words, one simple phrase, hold communion, hold communion. If you remember, I said last week, the big picture of this whole paragraph is really something of a syllogism. It's something of an argument. If A, or since A, then B. Since this is the case, therefore this ought to be the case from it. Remember, the first half establishes the duties and obligations that each church has to one another. It begins with the phrase, as each church. That's if A, as each church. And then the second half begins by, so the churches. As each church, therefore, so the churches. The thrust of the argument is that since there are all these duties and obligations of each church to one another because we all compose one body, therefore, so the churches ought to hold communion 
together. But it's that last phrase in particular, in the idea of holding communion with other churches, that I really want to focus on. I want to focus on it on the one hand so we understand what the concept means. Holding communion uh, is, if it's not a technical term, it is at least a very specific concept. The, the confession and the subscribers of this confession have a very specific concept in mind by that phrase. And I would say that that concept is formal associationalism. And we want to demonstrate that. On the other hand, as I said last week, I don't really want, I don't merely want to explain the phrase, but also defend what I just said, namely that our confession understands holding communion in terms of formal associationalism. If you remember, I said last week there are some Reformed Baptists today uh, who, although godly and, and very intelligent, um, in this they would disagree with us, and they would argue that formal associations are not what is in view here, and that you can hold to the confession, reject formal associationalism, keeping only informal ties with other churches, and that that is within the bounds of our confession. Now, what the question really comes down to here is whether you can still keep the intention of the wording of this passage while being opposed to formal associations. I'm going to argue that you cannot, that a mere informal communion only is not what the confession has in mind, and that, in fact, that position is contrary to how Baptists have understood and practiced this passage of our confession of faith. Um, I believe those first subscribers of our confession would not have understood that position as being in line with their own confession. I, I don't think they would have seen it that way. They would have seen it as being outside of that. Um, now, there's, there's no question that you can reinterpret the words to fit that meaning. Uh, I have no doubt you can do that, but that's also not how we're supposed to use confessions of faith. Um, you can get in a lot of trouble if you're doing that, and we've seen trouble uh, in areas like the doctrine of God, the Trinity, right, where people are saying, well, I'm just holding to the bare wording of, of, of the confession of faith. Yeah, but not in a way that people have understood for thousands of years, um, and that's not really how we use them. For example, one brother, he writes this, um, we are being encouraged to interpret holding communion as meaning explicit formal associational fellowship. The discussion of history is not irrelevant, but neither is it normative. Think of what he just said. The discussion of history is not irrelevant, but neither is it normative. Yes and no. It depends on what you're talking about, and I think he's actually confusing two things. It is true, as our confession says, that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. But the question is not yet, is formal associational, uh, associationalism biblical? In that question, Scripture is normative. But when you're interpreting the confession, if you're interpreting a historical document, you can't just take a bare reading of the words and understand them however you wish to understand them. That, again, is a Trojan horse of error. Phrases and terminology have definite meanings throughout the history of theology, 
They're communicating specific ideas, and you just can't interpret them uh, some other new way than the other way they were originally understood and claim you still hold to the intent of the same document. You can reject the confession on that point because you don't think it's biblical, but you can't just understand words however you wish to do so. That's very problematic in terms of confessionalism. A good question to always ask, this is something we always want to ask, is would the original writers or subscribers of this confession, would they have recognized my position as being the position of the confession or at least one of the positions within the bounds of the confession? There are parts of our confession which is written more broadly so as to encompass and allow more than one position, but is my position one of those, right? Is it or is it not really what that's talking about? That's more the question we want to ask. To that question, I would respectfully argue that the rejection of formal associationalism would have been seen as out of line with the confession and really contrary to Baptist practice for the first hundred, several hundred years, and even now, I would say it's, it's vastly the minority position among Baptists, Okay. All right, well, let's get down to it. What I'd like us to do is first answer the question, how did the subscribers of our confession uh, understand the idea of holding communion? And then we'll ask the more fundamental question, is that understanding biblical? Uh, are we adding something onto Scripture, or does our practice of associationalism flow, and is it founded in Scripture? We want to ask that too, okay? First, what did the first subscribers of our confession understand by the phrase holding communion? As I said, since our confession is a historical document, we need to do a bit of history, and particularly to examine the use of that phrase. Here in the handout I have given, uh, we'll see um, several uses of this phrase holding communion. It's very commonly used. This is not really mysterious what this means. Um, you see it used by Baptists in a very specific way, okay? On the one hand, holding communion can be used very broadly. It can mean just like having communion, having fellowship with someone else. It can speak of members in the same church having communion together. It can mean of members of one church with another having communion. It can be used very broad, broadly to mean fellowship. It can, however, depending on the context, which is how I would say it should be understood here, more narrowly be understood as formal interchurch communion, which is what I would say the confession is doing. For example, in the handout on the first page, it says examples of, I think it says examples of holding communion, right? One of those pages. First, we have, uh, we have two examples from two particular Baptist associations that were formed in the 1650s, okay? The first example is the Abingdon Association. After they formed they sent a letter to churches in London that were in association with one another there to let them know they had formed an association, okay? Listen to what they say. It says, at this meeting, 1653, this ensuing epistle was subscribed by the messengers of the churches of Henley, Kensworth, Eversholt, and afterwards by the churches of Abingdon and Reading. Uh, I could ask, Jason, do you know how many of those, which ones were... Subscribe the confession as well? Yeah. Probably several of them, though, right? 
Okay. 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 So the confession is subscribed uh, some 30-something years later. Some of these churches that we'll read in these associations also sent messengers to that 1689 General Assembly. Okay, it's important to understand. This is what the letter says. To the Church of Christ, of which our brethren John Spilsbury and William Kiffin are members, and to the rest of the churches in and near London, agreeing with the said church in principles and constitutions, and accordingly holding communion with the same, the churches of Abingdon, reading Henley, Kensworth, and Eversoltz, and greeting. Faithful and beloved brethren, the Lord our God, having made us to lay to heart how true churches in the apostles' day held a firm communion, each with each other, and how necessary it was for us to endeavor to do the same, as it becometh particular assemblies which make up but one Mount Zion, that we might endeavor to keep each other pure and to clear the profession of the gospel from scandal and to manifest our love to all the saints and thereby to manifest ourselves to be true churches of Christ and that we may show ourselves sensible of the need that we have or may have one of another and that the work of God wherein all the churches are concerned might be the better carried on by a combination of counsels, prayers, and endeavors. Through the assistance of the same God, after many conferences and seeking to the Lord, we solemnly entered into such an association, each with each other, as this enclosed copy of our agreement doth manifest. Now the letter continues, but just note several things. They say that churches in the apostles' day held communion together. They say they held a firm communion together. And because of this, they said that they sought to endeavor to do the same, okay? So they're seeking to do the same, what? To hold communion together. Well, how did they do that? They say, we solemnly entered into such an association. They endeavored to hold communion, so they entered into such an association. And notice the language there of such an association, this is the first time in the letter that the word association is used, but by calling it such, it's making a reference to what they were talking about before, namely the, what they considered to be the communion that churches had before. So they're almost, they really are interpreting holding communion and entering into an association as the same thing, okay? Next, from the Midlands Association, we read of how they formed their association together says, the agreement of certain churches at our meeting together at Morton Hinmarsh, the 26th day of the fourth month of 1655, the Lord our God, having according to his free and infinite mercy, given us to be in his son Jesus Christ and in himself through him, and to be baptized into his name and to walk in distinct churches and assemblies of Zion, according to the rule of his word, According to the measure and knowledge of grace which he hath bestowed upon us and given unto us to agree in the same principles as appeareth by our unanimous consenting in the same truths and especially contained in 16 articles of faith and order agreeable to the Holy Scriptures. Before this, it's not in here, but they had several principles of their confession of faith, other things that they wrote that they were in agreement on. It says, agreeable to the Holy Scriptures and hath effectually taught us to endeavor to walk answerably 
We do, therefore, according to the will of God, clearly appearing in his word, with true thankfulness unto him for his grace, mutually acknowledge each other to be true churches of Christ, and that it is our duty to hold a close communion each to another, as the Lord shall give opportunity and ability, endeavoring that we may all increase more and more in faith and knowledge and in all purity and holiness to the honor of our God. And it is our resolution in the strength of Christ to endeavor thus to do. Subscribed in the name of the churches above mentioned by the messengers of the said churches respectively by them, thereunto authorized and appointed. Again, note what they say they are doing and how they understand this phrase of holding communion. They say, we do therefore mutually acknowledge each other to be true churches of Christ and that it is our duty to hold a close communion each to each other. And then they close by saying, and it is our resolution in the strength of Christ to endeavor thus to do. Endeavor thus to do what? Hold communion together. And they're doing this at the formation of their association. Okay? Now, there are many other records of Baptist associations we could look at. Um, there were quite a few of them. Not all of them explain their history or their reasons for joining. Some just start. It just says the first meeting, the date, and it's just like, boom, you go straight into business, right? But they all held a similar practice and understanding of what they were doing. They were holding communion together through associations. One author who edited and published records from an association in northern England has this to say. He says, The movement towards organized associations seems to have been a natural progression from the original conviction of Baptist church polity on matters of discipline and mutual encouragement. In the 1650s, a time favorable to open organization or associations emerged. In the persecution period of 1660 to 1685, such meetings were probably less regularly held, and they certainly left few records as evidence. So although, in many ways, the General Assembly held in 1689 was a new departure for Calvinistic Baptists, meaning they had never held a national assembly before, its meeting reflected a well-established practice. Its meeting reflected a well-established practice. So what does it mean to hold communion? How did the Baptists who subscribed our confession understand that phrase? This is not hard to discern. It's not a mystery. They all formed associations. Not only was that the norm, I have found no Baptist who rejected that idea, and if they did, they never subscribed our confession, okay? You have to kind of see the irony part of this, of what, what is being argued here. We're arguing over how to interpret what we refer to as the 1689 confession. Now, the confession was written in 1677, but it's often called the 1689 because it was adopted and subscribed in the 1689 General Assembly. But don't forget what that means. It was a General Assembly at the formation of a national association, which in a few years, in turn, encouraged the formation of regional associations as well. And so if you want to understand how they understood that phrase of the time, just look at what was happening in 1689 and look at what happened in the following years. They established formal associations, okay? Any questions before we move on?
And William Kiffin was there, right? Yeah. 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 So again, this is, uh, a lot of these folks are going to be 35 years later at the 1689 General Assembly. Several of them are, okay? Any other, any thoughts or questions, Billy? That might be it. For, for yeah, spelling, uh, I have modernized the language in what you're reading in their association records, but a lot of that, um, the spelling is quite, it's not quite as standardized. And so, especially place names or proper names, those, yeah, so it could very well be that. Kind of, as I said, it's a little confused. So if you remember, uh, I read from the one brother who said, history is not irrelevant, but it's not normative. Uh, well, that depends what you're talking about. If you're talking about, um, are, are we saying, is, this, is, the confessional, is the confession biblical in, in what it understands? That's a separate question from coming along and saying, well, the, con the confession means this. The confession understands this to be biblical teaching. Um, we would all agree that confessions are subordinate to Scripture, um, and yet you kind of, you can't just come along and understand terms like persons, one substance. Uh, you can't understand justification, like just take phrases that had a certain meaning at a certain time, which are being communicated, and kind of reinterpret them. If no one understood it that way at that time, then history is, in that sense, kind of normative for your understanding of history. Now, they, they reject the exegesis as well, um, uh, which is common. I would say the, the exegesis that undergirded a lot of this, they very much reject that. Um, so I don't know if that totally answers your question. It's a little bit like whack-a-mole, respectively, when I was reading some of this uh, in some of the argumentation. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. So they do art. Now, let me just be clear. It's not like they hate other churches. Um, they love other churches of Christ. And uh, Sovereign Joy has even been blessed. I won't say the name, but we've been blessed by one of these other churches. They have a love for Christ and God's people, um, but it's very much like the rejection of formal church membership. Okay, they're opposed to that, uh, not only on biblical grounds, but they don't think that's required in the confession. My, my argument is, Baptists haven't understood it that way for the first several hundred years, and it's very common. Um, I think they would have also understood your practice as being like, what are you doing? Why won't you join with us? What? You don't? Well, that's what we all do. I don't think you're in line with us on this, so. Answer that? Yeah. Well, let's now ask the even more fundamental and important question, one that perhaps may seem a bit harder to answer, 
which is to say, okay, I, I get this, it's historical, it's even confessional, but is it biblical? After all, we, we want our practice to ultimately stand upon and flow from the Scriptures themselves, and not just history, so is it biblical? Here, let me just say, and this is important, and I don't mean this in any kind of a disrespectful way, it depends on what you mean by biblical. I really mean that. It depends on what you mean by biblical. If you're asking for chapter and verse, and sometimes some of these brothers kind of have language that lends itself to this kind of idea, if you're asking for chapter and verse where it says that the Church of Jerusalem and the Church of Antioch formed the Eastern Mediterranean Association of Reformed Baptist Churches, well, we don't have that, and you're not going to find things like that in Scripture, just as you don't find a lot of other things that are implied in Scripture, though not explicitly stated. That doesn't mean, though, that it's not biblical, okay? You have to be careful how you use that terminology. That being said, I believe it is biblical. I would say the best way to argue for it would be to argue along this, the same lines as formal church membership, which is ultimately grounded in the idea of covenanting together. If you remember, I said a few months ago that the early Congregationalists got a lot of flack from Presbyterians over their covenanting together into church fellowship. And we read where in response to this, John Cotton uh, gives an argument of what they, what they mean by a church covenant and the biblical basis for it. Okay, let me read that again. Listen to what he says. The mutual relation wherein all the members in the church stand to one another, members to members, and all of them to their officers and their officers to them, together with their mutual interest in one another and mutual power one over another, do all of them necessarily imply a mutual confederacy? Okay, Confederacy, uh, don't think of the Confederate States of America, okay? It just means uh, to be in covenant, uh, uh, to be joined together, okay? All of them necessarily imply a mutual confederacy, one with another, and that whosoever will partake herein must partake in their confederacy. So he basically argues then that their relation to one another, their mutual interest and duties towards one another, all of which we see in Scripture that members have towards one another, these all necessarily imply a mutual confederacy. They necessarily imply a mutual confederacy or a joining together in covenant. He gives the following explanation. He says, suppose, he's writing in New England, suppose a godly Christian come over to New England as every year or some or other do. There is not any minister of any of our churches who can usurp pastoral authority over him unless that Christian call him thereunto or profess his subjection to his ministration according to God. I can't just say to a visitor, I'm now your pastor, you're my member, you're in my flock. Boom, I have declared it to be so. You can't do that, right? Nor can such a man expect any minister's watchfulness over him as his minister, unless the minister see just cause to accept such a charge and profess so much. I have a list of people I pray for. The first people on those lists, okay, this doesn't reflect a shortness of love. The first people on that list are my official flock, okay? Other people, maybe visitors or people elsewhere, 
they're, they're at the very end. Not because I love them less, but because my primary duty is to my flock. And that, that watchfulness will not be granted immediately just, just because you're visiting. You first have to join into the membership of the church, okay? He goes on to say, no church in the country nor all the members of any church can take upon them to censure any stranger, though an inhabitant amongst them, unless he give himself up to them and profess his subjection to the gospel of Christ among them. We can't just discipline and excommunicate, throw out of communion, someone who hasn't entered into communion yet with us, even though they lived amongst us. They have to first join. He says, let men call this expression of mutual agreement by whatever name they please, this is no other than what we call church covenant. And I would say that is no other than what we call formal church membership. A church covenant and formal church membership is simply making explicit that which is implicit by formally entering into covenant with a particular body of Christ and its members. Okay, Is it biblical? Yes. Is it explicit? Not necessarily. It's implied but it's still biblical. We'll take that and apply it to churches. We see in Scripture that not only do Christians stand in relation to one another, not only do Christians as individuals have obligations and duties towards one another, but churches as well. Churches are to pray for one another. They support one another financially at times. They receive and assist the members of other churches when they are traveling. All kinds of duties and obligations that churches have towards other churches, as we saw in chapter 27 on the communion of saints. I would argue from that, to use the wording of cotton, that all of those duties and obligations necessarily imply a mutual confederacy of churches joining together. Note, this is not a parachurch organization beside the church. It is not a supra-church, as one brother called it, above the church organization. It is not an association alongside the churches, nor above the churches, but an association of the churches themselves. They are joining and covenanting, as it were, together. Now, this idea of covenanting is really what is behind the idea of holding communion together. For example, listen to what John Cotton says elsewhere. He says, Though the church of a particular congregation, consisting of elders and brethren, and walking with a right foot in truth and peace of the gospel, be the first subject of all church power needful to be exercised within itself, and consequently be independent from any other church or synod in the use of it, Although all these churches are independent, yet it is a safe and wholesome and holy ordinance of Christ for such particular churches to join together in holy covenant or communion and consolation amongst themselves. Notice the interchangeability of covenant and communion. This idea of joining together explicitly matches what we've seen in the association of early particular Baptists. They're very much, in a certain sense, covenanting together to have communion. Think of the word, for example, of the Abington Association. They say that they solemnly entered into an association together. If you use that, that term of solemnly, 
you just look up what that's commonly used with, it's commonly used in covenants or other kinds of things. Think of the solemn league and covenants. Have you ever heard of that? It's the solemn oath you're giving. Even the idea of an association. If you look up wording that's, that's commonly found with that, you'll find terms like oath, bond, league, compact, all of these things in a sense related to covenanting. These associations, these churches are basically writing the terms of their walking together down. For example, the Midlands Association ends their statement by saying, and it is our resolution in the strength of Christ to endeavor thus to do. When you say something like that, you're kind of making vows in a certain sense. By the strength of Christ, I will do so, right? And so, just as with church membership, so also associational membership. We can say that although it is not explicitly stated in Scripture, yet it is implied by the bonds and duties and obligations that churches have with one another. However, we might go further than this. Not only is formal associationalism biblical, but as we saw with church membership, so also it's very much supported by the light of nature as well, or as the confession calls it, things common to human actions and societies. You know, we considered uh, the idea that with, with, so, with so many human things, we enter into formal agreements, to kind of not like irrelevant, but in so many things. In the most weighty things in, in marriage, you give vows and you sign legal documents. Your children are not just yours. They don't just maybe come from your body. They are legally yours as well. If you get a loan or a mortgage, it's not just like an, it could be, I guess, an informal relationship, but more often than not, you're signing and agreeing to the terms of papers. Even if you join a gym, you typically have membership. It's common for all human societies and actions. Why would the local church be any different, right? And if you say, well, it's not, but you have a problem with churches doing that in association, I would say that that's a contradiction. You're being inconsistent. Furthermore, just from a practical perspective, there's going to be a lot of things that are made much harder without formal associational membership. Now, here, let me say this. One brother complained that the arguments for associationalism were too often, he described them as being pragmatic or practical as opposed to biblical. They were really born out of pragmatism. Perhaps some have stated it that way, but I would also not so easily separate that which is practical from that which is biblical. In other words, you can legitimately question how someone is practically carrying out biblical commands. Some ways of carrying out biblical commands are practically going to be more efficient than others, and yet that doesn't mean your concerns are merely grounded in pragmatism. Uh, again, this kind of, that kind of argumentation, um, again, lends itself. I don't want to use the word biblicism because it's too easily thrown around out there. Um, but like that the use of reason is somehow not biblical. Uh, Turretin explains that. We can use reason in our argumentation. It doesn't mean our doctrine rests upon reason, right? Um, but... There are some ways that are practically better of carrying out biblical commands, okay? 
Um, let's see here. For example, think again of what Cotton says about church membership. No man coming over to New England can expect a minister's watchfulness over him as his minister unless the minister see just cause to accept such a charge. Um, pastors, again, are called to watch over their flock. Just because someone shows up on Sunday doesn't mean they're necessary. doesn't mean you hate them and don't love them, but it doesn't mean they're part of the flock yet. Well, I would say I don't know that it's our job as our church to go around being watchful of every single church out there. Um, there's a lot of wonky churches, even just in our area. I don't think it's our job to make it our duty to go and try to correct every single church out there. First of all, who could do that? And also, they, haven't, they don't even know us, and we're just appointing ourselves to that task. But those churches within our association, if we see them doing something wonky, doing something that needs to be admonished, there's definitely a duty and obligation, and you know that because they've already said, hey, let's walk together in communion. Otherwise, to just show up, hi, I'm Jason, or he's, he's Jason, I'm Ryan. We have a list of five things that you're doing wrong. They'd be like, excuse me, who are you? I've never met you before. We don't do things that way, right? There's a lot of times, um, it, or, well, hold on, I got confused. Oh, okay. Uh, a lot of times, Men who are opposed to formal associations participate in what are called pastor's fraternals, which are often more like pastor's conferences, which are not bad things. I'm sure they're, they're good enough themselves. I would say, though, that just by going to a pastor's conference, one church is not necessarily agreeing to have another church's watchfulness over the other churches of those pastors who attend, nor can you necessarily do that. You know, if you've ever gone to pastor's conferences, even ours in Texas, you get a whole gamut of people who come. Some people that you might go, I don't, I don't know that we'd be formally in association with you. I'm glad you're here, but I don't know. I think there's some serious disagreements. And so just by people visiting and attending a pastor's conference, that's not necessarily churches holding communion together. You might make friendships with other pastors, and that's all good, but it's not the same thing. Also notice our confession has the idea not just of elders of other churches holding communion, not just pastors' fraternals, but churches holding communion with other churches, okay? Furthermore, I would say there are definitely times when it's very necessary to have a definite idea of who you are in fellowship with and who you are not in fellowship with, um, our, our world that we live in finds it absolutely evil to exclude anyone, right? Inclusivity is the word of the day, and yet there are times when we need to know who is included and who is excluded in a certain sense, especially in the local church, namely when you do things like vote, right? We see in the New Testament that the members of churches appoint their deacons, they appoint their elders. They do all kinds of things. Well, who gets to vote in those things? Maybe some guy who just showed up. He just showed up that week. Hey, can I vote on things? Everyone else has been there for a while? Probably not. Okay, how long does he have to be there? Maybe at least like three months. Then he's part of the church. That's kind of how the church I used to go to in California, the pastor would say, you're a member if you've been here for more than two weeks. They didn't have formal membership, right? Um, 
We also didn't get to vote on who our elders were. <laughs> there's, a reason, there's a reason why that happened. Um, but how do you do that unless there's kind of this idea of who's in and who's out? It's, it's hard to do that. I would say the same thing can happen with associations. Um, we have in our associations things that we, things that we vote on, things that we give counsel on. Um, you don't get to vote on things if you're not a formal uh, member church. You can share your report. We're glad you're there. We'll even pray for you. We want the Lord to bless you. But you don't get to vote on things. And it's necessary to know who is a church that is in this association or not because we do things like vote. Now, I want to show you something. I want to show you kind of how, how much we see this in Scripture um, and to see that churches can do this together. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15, the famous Jerusalem Council. If you're a if you're a, an Anglican, you see this as the basis for Anglicanism. If you're a Presbyterian, you see this as the basis for Presbyterianism. If you're a Congregationalist, you see this as the basis for associating together as mutual congregations. doesn't mean there's no actual view. Of course we're right, right? But anyway, everybody goes to this. Uh, Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, okay? Beginning in verse 1. It says, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Notice there again, these are the actual Judaizers. Why? They're saying you can't be saved if you're not circumcised. Verse 2. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with, the bre with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some, some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Here we see the church of Antioch sends messengers. That word for appointing them is often used for choosing, could be for electing. They choose these men to go up to Jerusalem. Okay? Verse 3. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So they all come together. You have representatives from the church of Antioch, the leaders of the church of Jerusalem coming together to consider the matter. Verse 7, it says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and for the sake of time, we will go all the way down. Okay? Then James get, gets up. It says, he says in verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Okay? And it says this in verse, 40, in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now, we're running very quickly out of time here, but just note lastly. I heard this from Dr. Renahan years ago in seminary. 
But that phrase, it seemed good. See that? Then it seemed good, verse 22. Often in the context, and I think this context fits that, is a technical phrase that implies that something was passed, like a resolution was passed by voting. Now we're really quickly running out of time, but just to show you some examples of this, if you flip over the handout I gave you, there's some examples of this in extra-biblical Greek sources, okay? So Herodotus is talking about Troy. says, The Greeks first resolved to send messengers demanding that Helen be restored and atonement be made for the seizure. Literally, it says in the Greek, it seemed good to the Greeks to first send messengers. Okay? Next, Aeschylus. How you pronounce that? Aeschylus. There's a messenger who stands up. He says, It is my duty to announce the will and decrees of the council on behalf of the peoples of this Arcadmian city. And then he says, Such is the decree of the Cadmian authorities. Literally, so it has seemed good to those of the Cadmian city. Lastly, move down to Aristophanes. This is from one of his plays. I don't know if this, it seems maybe comical. There's a senate or a council of women taking place, and it says this. Hearken, all of you, this is the decree passed by the senate of the women under the presidency of Timoclea, and at the suggestion of Sostrate, it is signed by Lysilla, the secretary. Here, this is definitely like a voting context, and yet the phrase, this is the decree passed by the senate, is literally, it seemed good to the senate. So when you see that in Acts 15, are they using Robert's rules of order? Probably not. Didn't exist back then. But they could have just as sophisticated discussions and debates and procedure as we can today. And they are passing something like a resolution by voting. All that to say, to do things like that, you need an understanding of who's in and who's out to vote on things, which makes formal associational membership necessary. Okay? We could go into more, but we are very quickly running out of time. Uh, if you have any questions, ask, ask me later, okay? Thank you, you are just...